This morning's reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, starting at verse 1 through to verse 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Just as a reminder, last Sunday we started our four-week vision series. Every autumn we spend time asking the question, what's our vision as a church for the coming year? And what we said, our vision is this year, pursuing encounter that leads to mission. We want to be a church that presses into the presence of God and then is sent out on mission for God. And what we're doing for four weeks is we press into that vision is looking at Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has a vision of God. And we're learning what an encounter with God looks like, what it feels like, and what it's going to mean as we turn and face our city. And so four weeks in this chapter, and uh, so far I've been really humbled by what I've seen. And I hope that as we look at the passage today, that we find ourselves not just understanding something about what it means to encounter God but actually experiencing it. And so let's pray for that now, even as we begin our time of study together. Our God, thank you for Isaiah chapter 6. And even as we read these verses today, I feel myself uh, inadequate to the task of trying to explain these verses. So we pray for the power of your spirit. We pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to not just learn about you, but to actually encounter you right now. We ask for this, for your glory and for our good, as we pray together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. There's a short book that I've read half a dozen times called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's written by a man called A.W. Tozer. And the very first sentence of that book says this, what comes into your mind when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so I ask you this morning, when you think about God, what does come into your mind? Probably for many people in our city, and dare I say many people even in our church, at least subconsciously, There's two differing ways that people generally think of God. 
On one hand, there are people who think of God as a powerful but distant being who lives in some kind of enormous castle in the sky, who mostly doesn't want to be bothered, he just wants to be obeyed. And so a powerful, distant, kind of aloof figure that gives rules for you to keep and you must obey them. On the other hand, there are other people who have a really different conception of God. They think of God as almost the great grandfather in the sky, whose job it is to just love everybody and give out treats and make you happy. And I would say that most people, when they think of God, that's what they think of. Someone who's distant but powerful, or someone who's just cheery and sweet and giving out treats all the time. And the danger is that if you think of God in those ways, you're bound for disappointment. Because to think of God as just powerful and distant in the sky is to not experience grace and love. But to have a God who's just a great grandfather in the sky doesn't deal with the evil and injustice and the pain that we see in our world. What we need is a vision of God as he actually is. What we need is a vision of God like Isaiah has. A real encounter with God that changes your life forever. Because when Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, Life for him was never the same. He came face to face with a God of glory who is also a God of grace. Glory and grace. And that encounter changed his life and it changed Israel, his nation. Ultimately, it changed the world. And we're going to be a church that sees London renewed and London healed and London experiencing wholeness to the degree that we press into the presence of God and encounter him as a God of glory and as a God of grace. Now, today, what I want to show you in this passage, three things about who this God is that Isaiah encountered. The first thing I'll show you today is that your view of God is probably too small. Second, I'll show you what a real encounter with God feels like. And then third, how a real encounter with God is possible. Three things. Your view of God probably too small. Second, what a real encounter with God actually feels like on the inside. And then, of course, third, how that kind of encounter can be possible. So first, your view of God is probably too small. I say probably because there are some of you who probably have a more Isaiah-shaped vision of God. But most of us, if we're honest... Don't. And this passage is meant to be like a cup of cold water splashing into our face, jolting us awake to the holiness of God. So what do we see in these verses about who God is? Well, it's a powerful image that's hard to express. It's hard to explain. Isaiah has a vision of God and he sees God as the king on the throne. And around the throne are angels. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. This is their continual song. This is ceaseless praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And at the crux, when Isaiah has a vision of God, what, what he encounters is God's holiness. And that's what I want to focus on today. The God that Isaiah encounters, the God that you need to see, the real God, is holy. Now, let me confess to you that as I've been, this has been one of the hardest sermons 
for me to prepare to preach. Because how do I talk about the holiness of God? My vocabulary is not sufficient. My limited understanding cannot comprehend the holiness of God. And so even as I'm trying to prepare this sermon and preach on it, I feel wholly inadequate to the task. The best that I can do is try to faithfully unpack these words to give you a sense for what Isaiah experienced that day. But friends, I'll tell you what we need more than anything is the Spirit of God to help us encounter in a way that my words just can't do. So know that. I feel that tension today. But what do we mean? As best as I can try to unpack, what do we mean when we talk about God's holiness? And in a word, holiness is not a moral description. Holiness is not saying God is moral or pure. Sometimes that's the way we use the word today. Oh, you're so holy. You know, oh, you're such a goody two-shoe. Does anybody say that anymore? Maybe not. Anyway. Holiness, in its most basic level, means that God is other. He is unequaled. He is unmatched. He is unrivaled. When the Bible says, when the prophets say to God, there is none like you, that's not poetry. That's not rhetorical flourish. They mean, literally, there is no one and nothing like God. He is holy. He is other. He's in a category by himself. Oftentimes, when you and I think of God, because we're prone to make gods in our own image, that's what idolatry is, what we think of God is someone who's like us, but just better, bigger, nicer, stronger. No. He is other. He is creator and Everything else is creation. And to try to give you a sense for how awesome his holiness is, look with me again at these vivid but mysterious verses. Start with me, if you would, in verse 2. This is the picture we're getting of God's holiness. It says, the Lord is on the throne. He's the king. The train of his robe fills the temple. That's to say the edges of his kingly robe floods the space that they're in, a building bigger than this. And then verse 2, it says, above him were seraphim. That's a Hebrew word. It's hard to translate. It means the burning ones. These are angelic, fiery creatures whose presence is dazzling. Above him were the seraphim, and each of them had six wings. With two wings, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they're flying. (laughs) And they were calling to one another... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, verse 4, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Try to feel the force of this. Isaiah gets a vision of God on his throne and he sees a king. And this king is so spectacular that an undefined number of angelic beings who are called the burning ones are in constant motion around this throne. And they sing perpetually, holy, holy, holy. Now, what is a seraphim? What are these angelic creatures? On one hand, these are creatures of dazzling splendor. 
you know, you've encountered beautiful people before, right? And when you see someone who's really beautiful, it, it stops you in your tracks. You've never seen anything near as beautiful as a seraphim. These are dazzling, spectacular creatures. And not only that, but these are angels. That means they are morally perfect. They have never thought a bad thought. They only live in perfect obedience to God. There is no sin in them. There's no darkness. There's no imperfection. And also, you know, sometimes when you have images of angels in your head, you think of someone wearing a little white robe, maybe a nice older looking person, playing a harp near a cloud. And that's because of greeting cards in movies. And you think, oh, that's so sweet. And you know, like an angel, huh? These angels are so powerful that when they sing, buildings shake. These are not sweet, docile little creatures. These are creatures of beauty that is scary, of perfection that would pierce you, and of power that shakes buildings. And they won't even look at the presence of God because he's so holy, because he's so glorious that they won't even take the wings away from their faces to gaze on him. And there's more. Not just do they praise the holiness of God, but look again at verse three. Their song is holy, holy, holy. This is the only place in the Old Testament where God is called not just holy, but three times holy. Three times holy. What's that about? If you're writing an email or a text to somebody today and you want to emphasize a word, what do you do? Bold, underline, italics, or if you're really hopped up on caffeine, all caps, <laughs> right? That's how you make an emphasis. That's how you call attention to a specific word. We have a way of doing it with formatting. But in ancient Hebrew, how do you emphasize a word? You double it. You repeat it. That's the ancient Hebrew way of calling attention to something. This God is not just holy, but he's holy, holy. But Isaiah does something here in recording this vision that was never done before in ancient literature. He three times is it. It's as if he's saying our vocabulary is not sufficient to convey how holy this God is. The best I can do is exponentially multiply holy, holy, holy. This God is other. This God is beyond. This God defies any category that I might want to put him in. He is perfection to the nth degree. He is wisdom to the nth degree. He is justice beyond telling. He is love in his innermost being. He is holy. Now, even as I try to convey to you the holiness of this God, I find myself wholly inadequate to the task. But are you beginning to see that this is a God who is bigger and more spectacular and more terrifying than you probably have ever really reckoned with? This God is holy, holy, holy. So what does it look like to encounter him? If you find yourself in the presence of this God, what does it feel like? Verse 5, Isaiah has a vision of God as holy, holy, holy. He's there in the temple, and he sees the one the seraphim dare not even look at. And look at what Isaiah says in verse 5. 
Woe to me. It's the first word, by the way, Isaiah speaks in the book that bears his name. Woe to me. I am ruined. What happens when you encounter the presence of the holy God? You're humbled. What Isaiah experiences here and what he's telling us in verse 5 is he is humbled to the core. He feels exposed. Have you ever had the experience of going to a dimly lit restaurant for dinner and you pass by a mirror? And you know, because you do this, you look at yourself in the mirror, you catch a glimpse of yourself. And in that dimly lit restaurant, you think, ah, I'm looking pretty good. George Clooney, watch out. And then, finish dinner, you go home, you turn on the lights in your flat that are much brighter, and you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, ah, not so much. Not George of the Clooney, more like George of the Jungle. What's happened? The brighter the light, the more exposing it is. And when Isaiah gets into the presence of the holy, holy, holy God, he is staring into a light that is brighter than the sun times a zillion. And the only possible conclusion that a person who stands in the presence of God can really have is to say, woe is me, I am ruined. That word ruined in Hebrew, awfully hard to translate. It's probably better translated as the old King James does, I am undone. It's as if Isaiah is saying, you know, when I look out at other people compared to them, I feel pretty good about myself. I'm put together. But I just saw God and his holiness and I realize I'm coming apart at the seams. I am undone. Isaiah is humbled in the presence of this God. He's starting to lack the ability to build a confidence that's purely based on his own strengths. And we see that actually even more clearly if you look at the rest of verse 5. He says, woe is me, I am ruined. And then look at what he says. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What's that about? He has a vision of God holiness, glory beyond all telling. And he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. And then he starts talking about his mouth. I have unclean lips. Why is he focusing on his mouth? Here's the answer. What's Isaiah's job? He's a prophet. He is a professional God talker. His job is to use his lips to teach and to preach and to help people know God. That's where he has his professional training. That's what he spends most of his time doing. That's his greatest strength. And yet when he gets into the presence of the holy God, he realizes even the area that I'm best at is exposed in the presence of this holy God. Even the thing that I thought was my greatest asset, I realize I can't even trust it anymore. I'm a man of unclean lips. And notice he doesn't just say my lips are dirty. He uses a specific word, unclean. And you're thinking, what does this mean? Has Isaiah got a foul mouth? Is he like cursing people out and using explicatives? No. That word unclean means I can't, I'm not fit to come into the presence of God. And that's very telling. 
Because Isaiah, remember, is a prophet. His job is to use his words to help people know God. But when he really encounters God in his temple, sees his holiness, do you know what Isaiah is realizing? All the words that I've spoken, even the words about God, even the teaching I've done from the Bible, even as I try to help people encounter God, <laughs> I'm doing it for the wrong motives. I'm not doing it just to bring God glory. I'm doing it to build an identity for myself. I'm doing it to get a name for myself so people will like me and will follow me. He's realizing that even the good things he's done, his motives are not totally pure. And he feels exposed in the presence of the holiness of God. I wonder, what is this for you? What is the thing that when you see God and his holiness, you feel exposed to the core? I can relate a little bit to Isaiah. My job is to be a God talker. My job is to use my lips to try to help you know who God is. And you say, thank you, pastor, that's so great. You know, you're so, you're just, you know. Do you know that sometimes I use my words, even about God, to build an identity for myself? Sometimes my words, even if spoken in praise of God, are trying to make myself feel better. Or trying to preach a good sermon that you like and say, wow, that's a great church. In other words, when you really encounter God's holiness, he presses into the core and exposes us in the deepest part. And that's where Isaiah was. And this, by the way, is the path to freedom. To really come into the presence of a holy God that exposes us. There's a story in the New Testament that makes this extra clear, and I just want to spend a moment reflecting on it with you. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is telling a parable, and he tells a parable about two men who go into the temple to pray. But to lead into this parable, he says, the point he was teaching, was because there were some around him who were confident in their own righteousness, and they looked down on everybody else. So that, that's who Jesus is talking to a group of self-righteous people. And Jesus tells this story. He says, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. Now, in that time and place, a Pharisee was a morally upright person, someone that was very respected in their society, and the tax collector was hated. The tax collector was an outsider. The tax collector was someone you tried not to associate with. So two men go into the temple to pray, Pharisee and tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. So pause. Here's what you see. Pharisee goes into the temple to pray, ostensibly to pray. But he's really actually there to praise himself. Because he goes into the temple and what he does is he looks around. And he's building an identity for himself based on how he compares to the people around him. And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there or the adulterer over there, or the robber over there. I, on the other hand, not like them, I pray, I fast, and I tithe. Now pause. 
it's really good to not be a robber, right? Can we agree on that? It's good to not be an adulterer. It's also good to engage in the spiritual practices that God says help form you, things like fasting or tithing. The man's actually doing incredibly good things. What's his problem? He's trusting in them. And he's using those things to build an identity by which he can look down on people next to him. So the man goes into the temple to pray, but all he's really doing is he's praising himself. Come back to the story. Verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That man encountered God. And we know it because he was humbled. Because he said, I don't deserve to be here. Doesn't matter how I stack up next to other people in the presence of this holy God. The only thing I can cry out for is mercy. He was humbled. That's the sign. This man encountered God. He stopped trusting in himself. He stopped relying on himself because he knew that in himself dwelled no good thing. And Jesus says, I tell you, that man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified. Because all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What does a real encounter with God feel like? It's humbling, it's exposing. A real encounter with God leads you to say, not, oh, it's God's job to love me, but it's a wonder of all wonders that He does. A real encounter with God strips you of your pride. And it leads you to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So here's the final question. How is a real encounter with God possible? Back to our text in Isaiah 6. Isaiah has this glorious vision of the holiness of God. The seraphim are doing their thing. Isaiah's humbled. He's exposed. He feels himself to be sinful and dark and broken, unclean lips. And look at the end of verse 5. He says, I'm ruined, I'm undone. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, if you know anything about other stories like this in the Old Testament, what Isaiah is saying basically is this, I'm about to die. Because Isaiah knows stories in the Old Testament, you can't see God and live. Imagine looking at the sun in its brightness without sunglasses. That would hurt, right? You might actually do real damage to your eyes. Imagine trying to hug the sun. You, you can't even fathom it, right? The sun is like darkness compared to the holiness of God. And Isaiah just saw it. And he knows I'm in deep. I'm in real trouble here. My eyes have seen the king. And throughout the Old Testament, whenever someone encounters the presence of God, they don't say, oh, that was such a good service. Where do you want to go get brunch? <laughs> they don't say that. They say, we're about to die. Because a human being can't come into the presence of the holy God and survive. Unless God mediates his presence. Unless God does something that enables them to stand there. So when Moses, Exodus 33, 
wants to see the glory of God. He says, God, show me your glory. And God says, be careful what you ask for. You can't see my face and live. But God says to Moses, here's what I'll do. I'm going to tuck you into the cleft of the rock. And you can hide there. And you'll see just the shadow of my glory passing by. And you'll be safe. What about our story here in Isaiah 6? I'm done. I'm ruined. I've just encountered my sinful, unclean darkness is in the presence of the Holy One. But look at what God does in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Live coal, translation, a coal that just came off the fire from the altar. Burning. So hot that the seraphim, the burning one, has to use tongs to grab it. And with it, verse 7, he touched my mouth, the area of Isaiah's confession. And he says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What's happening? This is the key to every. This is how you have an encounter with God. What's happening? The live coal touches his lips. Two images here that we need to see. On one hand, a live coal has come from fire. And fire in the Bible is always a symbol of God's wrath. Sometimes modern people don't like to think of a wrathful God. But can I show you, you actually do need to think of a wrathful God. If I come into my living room at home and I see a viper coiled nearby to my four-month-old son, and I say to Esme, my two-year-old, hey, Esme, look, there's a viper next to Oliver. Uh, why don't we go and just watch what happens and just pay attention and just see? You would say, you're a terrible father. My love for my son demands me to hate and to act violently towards anything that would threaten him. The wrath of God is an extension of God's love. Because he is holy and pure and loving, he must consume and destroy all that is contrary to him. But do you see the rub? That would mean the end of us. <laughs> Unless he does something to mediate his presence. And what we learn here in this passage is on one hand you have the fire of God's wrath burning at the altar. But what is it burning up? A sacrifice. You see, in the temple system, on the altar, how does somebody come into the presence of God? How does an imperfect, broken human being come into the presence of the divine? God says there's only one way, through a sacrifice. Something has to be sacrificed in your place that covers you, that cleanses you. So that you, in all your imperfection, can actually come into the presence of God and not be smote dead. And the altar with the coal coming to Isaiah symbolizes both things. On one hand, God's wrath, which must consume darkness and sin, and sacrifice, which covers and forgives. And what Isaiah experiences in this moment is the holiness or the glory and the grace of God. He both encounters a holy God who's made provision to cover his sin. And you say, well, that's great for Isaiah. But what about us? Oh, friends, what Isaiah saw was just a picture. 
but we've seen the substance. Isaiah was looking just at a pointer, but we've come to the reality. Because in John chapter 1, when Jesus Christ came to the earth, John, the author, saw Jesus, and he says this, the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us, and we have seen glory, the glory of the only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The author John is saying, the glory, the holiness that Isaiah encountered, that's now enfleshed in a person. God became a human being. And this is part of the answer. How is a real encounter with this God possible? You can't get to him. He's got to do something to get to you. And Jesus Christ is the living incarnation of the holiness of God in human form. So that you can actually approach him. But as he brings God's holiness, you say, well, still, won't we be undone? Won't we be exposed? You read a little bit later in John 1. And this holy God now in flesh in a person is described this way. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, looking at Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John saw God in the flesh, he saw God in the flesh as a sacrificial animal. One who came to die for sin. One who came to pay the penalty that your sin deserved. In other words, Jesus is the coal that touches Isaiah's lips. The wrath of God judging sin and the love and grace of God dying in your place. Jesus is the cleft of the rock that Moses hid in so Moses could see just a part of God's glory and not be consumed. Jesus is how you encounter God. There's no other way because there's no other person who is both glorious and gracious, who is both holy and forgiving. He's the only one. And so what's the application for a sermon like this? The only possible application is run to Jesus Christ. He's the coal that can cleanse the darkest part of your life. He's the rock that you can hide in and be safe no matter what storm comes by. He is glory and he is grace. Run to him. Hide in him, trust in him, surrender to him. It's just him. And that's why, even though there's only one place in the Old Testament that we see the phrase, holy, 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 we see it once again in the New Testament. All the way at the end in the book of Revelation, when Jesus is on the throne and the angels keep singing, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. He's the one who brought God's presence near to you. He's how an encounter with God is possible. Let's run to him right now as we worship and respond. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for Isaiah chapter 6. And we do feel ourselves to be standing on holy ground today. And so now we pray by the power of your spirit that we come into this time of response. That you would help us to really encounter you. But to do so in Christ. 
to do so as those who are covered and freed and forgiven by Jesus. To be humbled from trusting in ourselves, to be humbled in the areas where we think ourselves to be most strong. And to experience the freedom that comes from surrendering everything to you. Help us to encounter you right now as holy, holy, holy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.